Why don't you take your Bibles and open up to the book of Daniel. We're back in the the book of Daniel today, and we're going to try to wrap up uh, Daniel chapter 4 before anybody else visits and says I'm still here. But uh, we'll go ahead and uh, wrap up Daniel chapter 4 today. So uh, uh, if you have your your Bibles, you can uh, open up to the book of of Daniel, find your place there. And uh, if you don't have a Bible, uh, you should be able to find one in the the pews around you or maybe uh, look on with your, your neighbor. Our church has been working through the, the book of, of Daniel, and uh, not only have we been getting better acquainted with, with Daniel, uh, but we've also been getting better acquainted with a man by the name of Nebuchadnezzar, uh, the, the king of, of Babylon. And from the very beginning of this book, the book of Daniel, Nebuchadnezzar has been involved in the business of kingdom building, uh, but he's not building the kingdom of Christ, he's building his own kingdom, and he's estab- establishing his kingdom over all the earth. And that's how the book of Daniel opens up. In uh, chapter 1 of the book of Daniel, in verse 1, it says, In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And why did he besiege Jerusalem? Why did he do that? Because he was putting himself in position to build his kingdom. We know from history that this was the same year, the uh, same year that he came to besiege Jerusalem, uh, was the same year that Babylon defeated Egypt. In one of the greatest battles of the ancient world, the Battle of Carchemish, uh, 609 to 605 B.C., and Jerusalem was at this time underneath the control of Egypt. So why did Nebuchadnezzar come to Jerusalem to besiege it? To let them know who was in charge. He was looking at building his kingdom, and he was telling Jerusalem, you know, look at me. I'm the captain now. I'm the one who's in charge. Over in chapter 2, if you remember Nebuchadnezzar had a troubling dream. And what was that dream about? It was about this kingdom. He was worried about the future of his kingdom. Would it last? Would it be taken over? How could he protect his kingdom from danger? In Daniel chapter 2 and verse 29, it says, As for you, O king, while on your bed, your thoughts turn to what would take place in the future. That's what he's thinking about. He's thinking about the future. And God was very clear about the answer to the questions that he had about the future in Daniel chapter 2 and verse 44, where he says, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom, that's what he was thinking about, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed, and that kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms, but it will itself endure forever. By the time we get to chapter 3, Nebuchadnezzar is still thinking about his kingdom, it's just the you know, second verse, same as the first. He's still thinking about his kingdom. In chapter 3, what we learn is that he's trying to cheat the system. God has just told him that your kingdom's going to come to an end. But now he's going to see what he can do to, to make it survive. So, so he assembles all the top officials of his government to gather around a golden image that he set up. And what is this image about? It's another attempt to establish his kingdom. The word for image that's used in chapter Three is the same word that was used for the statue in chapter 2. And that statue represented the kingdoms of men. And the gold in chapter 2 represented Nebuchadnezzar. So what is he trying to do? He's trying to establish a kingdom upon himself. Again, he's attempting to build his kingdom and forcing everybody to bow down and recognize his superiority, which didn't work out so well because there were three men who refused to bow down and all of them were fireproof. (laughs) It's a reminder that the kingdom will not be destroyed. The true kingdom will not be destroyed. It wasn't his. 
And by the time we get to the end of chapter 3, he's making another decree that all people from all languages, all men would, would reverence the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And don't miss this, what God was doing was removing the focus from Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom back to his. It's about my kingdom, Nebuchadnezzar, it's not about yours. There's nothing you can do to fight it, you can't oppose it, well you can oppose it but not successfully. But as we turn the page to chapter 4 in the book of, of Daniel, Nebuchadnezzar is at it again. <laughs> and this time, in Daniel chapter 4, it seems like he's finally reached his goal. All, all this time he's been trying to, to build his kingdom, to establish his kingdom. And by the time we get to Daniel chapter 4, it seems like he's finally there. It, it seems like his kingdom has been established. In verse 4 it says, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and flourishing in my palace. I'm finally there. Most commentators place this period of time at 570 BC after Babylon's siege of Tyre. Uh, it's ended and Egypt was also firmly under Babylon's control. They're actually building inscriptions that have been excavated uh, from this time uh, where Nebuchadnezzar described his kingdom as encompassing all the lands, the entire inhabited world, kings of far off mountains and remote places. Everybody's underneath my control. Nebuchadnezzar was on top of the world. And many people imagine, what would I do if I was on top of the world? What would I do? Nebuchadnezzar didn't have to imagine it because he was living it. He's living on top of the world. What's exactly what Jeremiah the prophet prophesied would happen? Jeremiah 27, verse 6 says, Now I have given all these lands into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, my servant, and I have given him also the wild animals of the field to serve him. All the nations shall serve him. This is what Daniel said about the king back in Daniel chapter 2, verse 37. You, O king, are the king of kings to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, the strength, the glory. Wherever the sons of men dwell or the beasts of the field or the birds of the sky, he has given them into your hand and caused you to rule. But ruling the known world wasn't enough for Nebuchadnezzar. He wanted more. Not only did he want to rule the world, but he wanted to claim the power and the glory and the majesty for himself. He wanted to establish a name for himself, a name above all names. Like I said, in the, the, the bricks that were found and excavated in Babylon, they were stamped with his signature. I, Nebuchadnezzar the king. He stamped everything with his name. He wanted to build a name for himself. He wanted to establish himself, not just a kingdom. In other words, what Nebuchadnezzar desired was to be like God. That's what Nebuchadnezzar wanted. And this is what the unrestrained desires of the sinful human heart look like. We want to be like God. We don't want to respect the boundary between the creator and the creature. We're constantly applying for God's job. We want his position. We don't want to bow to the throne. We want to be on the throne. The first temptation that was recorded on the pages of Scripture is the same enticement to be like God in Genesis 3, verse 4, the serpent said to the woman, you surely will not die, for God knows that the day that you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. Not only was that the first wicked thought in human history, it was also the first wicked thought in angelic history. Isaiah recounts the dark past that first opened the gates of hell. He describes the thoughts of Satan and this kind of parallel to the Babylonian kings in Isaiah 14. He says, How you have fallen from heaven, O star of the morning, son of the dawn. 
You've been cut down to the earth. You have weakened the nations. But you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit on the mount of the assembly in the recesses of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. And the curtain opens and closes with Satan having the same blasphemous desire on his heart. Time does nothing to cure Satan of his desire for the throne. The future will only prove with thousands of intervening years that Satan still has the same twisted desire that I will be like the Most High. Craving to be like God, not abated. One day the man of lawlessness will take his seat as the counterfeit deity in the temple of God. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 1 says, displaying himself as being God. The longing to be like God was the root of Satan's fall from heaven. One of the most glorious of all angels becomes the son of perdition over the single thought that I can be like him. There would be no rebellion. There would be no devil. There would be no hell if this desire did not exist. The root of the first sin and every other sin that pushes its way through the door is that I want the throne. I'll I'll be in charge. I'll do it my way. But what does God say? To whom then will you liken God? (laughs) Did you really think you could be like me? What likeness will you compare with me? It's what many of the false religions are after. You know, their pursuit of becoming one with the universe. Why? It's this pursuit for deity. Reaching the status of godhood. You can be a god, like the, the Mormon church says. You know, as Jesus is, you know, uh, as we are, Jesus one day was. And as Jesus is, we can one day become. I I can be like him. I can be like God. There's some Muslim religions, offshoots, that even say the same thing. We can be God. Even the so-called Christians that can imagine imagine that they can uh, speak things into existence. What's that a desire for? Desire to be like God. I want to be like him. And we don't want to be like him in the ways that he says to be like him. (laughs) Right? Be holy for I am holy. We don't want to be like him like that. Be like me in the the love, you know. Be my children, as Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5. You know, we don't want to be like him like that. No, we want to be like him in his glory. We want the honor. We want the prestige. We want the position. We don't want to be like God in the ways that he says to be like me. Imitate me as dear children. We don't want to be like him like that. No, we want to be like him in his glory. And this is what Nebuchadnezzar desired. that's, That's at root what he truly desired. Like I said, Daniel 4 is a terrifying picture of how God responds to that kind of sinful desire. And that should strike fear in all of us because it shows us how far God is willing to go to humble us. But it should also be a comfort to us to show how far God is willing to go to get us. (laughs) Just to remind you of where we were while Nebuchadnezzar was at ease on the top of the world, he started receiving these troubling messages from God in a dream. And Daniel, the exile from Judah, was eventually brought in to interpret the dream for him. And the dream can be divided up into three sections. This is all just review. Uh, First of all, there was the rise of Nebuchadnezzar in verses 20 to 22. Take a look at it. It says, The tree that you saw, which became large and grew strong, whose height reached to the sky and was visible to all the earth, and whose foliage was beautiful and its fruit abundant, and in which was food for all, under which the beast of the field dwelt, and in whose branches the birds of the sky lodged, it is you, O king, you know, again, just kind of pointing his finger 
like Nathan the prophet, you know, did with David. He's pointing at, at, at Nebuchadnezzar saying, you are the man. It's you. This dream that you're fearful of, it's you. The tree was a common picture of the, the kingdom in Hebrew literature. Nebuchadnezzar here is identified as the king of this kingdom. Uh, German archaeologists uncovered much of the ruins of ancient Babylon, and this, the, the city was beautiful, majestic. But that wasn't the problem to have a beautiful city. The problem is, is where do you think it comes from? Who do you give the credit to? Who do you give the credit to for what goes on in your life? You're obligated to turn to God and say thank you. Obligated. Anything else is sinful. Sinful. To think that you can do it by your own strength, right? You know, like James says, you know, I'll go here and there and sell this and buy that. But you don't say, if the Lord wills. (laughs) Like everything that I do is by the will of God. I I do nothing without the will of God. I'm obligated to turn to him and say thank you for everything that happens in my life. So we have this this kind of rise of Nebuchadnezzar, but he didn't give God thanks. Number two, we have the fall of Nebuchadnezzar in verse 23. It says, in that the king saw an angelic watcher, a holy one descending from heaven and saying, chop down the tree and destroy it. Yet leave the stump with its roots in the ground, but with the band of iron and bronze around it and the new grass of the field. Right here we have the, the, the chopping down of the tree, the chopping down of Nebuchadnezzar. The tree of Nebuchadnezzar was going to come crashing to the ground. The angelic watchers are the, the angels who watch over, are uh, faithfully attending the throne of God to do whatever he says to do. And then it becomes personal again in verse 23, and let him be drenched with the dew of heaven, let him share with the beasts of the field. Seven periods of time pass over him, and this again is just straight, straightforward language. The king of Babylon was about to come, the king of beasts. Live like an animal. Live how they live. Eat like they eat. Grass to eat like a cattle, drenched with the dew of heaven. Back in verse 16, it says, Let his mind be changed from that of a man to a beast's mind be given to him. And seven periods pass over him. But there's also going to be a restoration, and this is what we find in verse 26. It says, And that it was commanded to leave the stump. Don't, 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 don't remove it completely. Leave a stump. So stumpy here is just sitting above the ground. Roots still underneath. There's still some life there, but barely, barely any life. But, but there's a, a, a band put around them so that, you know, nobody can cut it down any further. Your kingdom will be assured to you after you recognize, <laughs> after you recognize that it is heaven that rules. You need to look up to heaven. Heaven is where sovereignty comes from. Heaven is where every good gift that you have comes from. Lift your eyes to heaven. This is actually the only place in the Old Testament where heaven is used as a substitute for God. God rules, but it kind of places where his throne is. His throne is in heaven. Heaven is what rules. There's a promise of restoration that's given, and this is where we left off last time with Daniel pleading with Nebuchadnezzar Please, Nebuchadnezzar, avoid the punishment because God can still extend mercy. He can still extend his mercy. Again, we know the Ninevites averted the judgment of God because they repented. Could it be with you, King? Could could you avert the judgment of God by repentance? Could you step back from the judgment of God? Hezekiah averted the judgment of God because he, he pled with the Lord. Nebuchadnezzar, could that be you? All of us, if we're believers in here, we've, we've escaped the judgment of God, haven't we? You know, the soul that sins shall surely die, but we've turned from our sins. We've trusted in Christ. 
And now there's no more condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, right? Romans 8.1. We, we, we don't abide underneath the wrath of God. We were at one time children of wrath, even as the rest, right? But that's not us anymore. That used to be us. We used to be those children of wrath, but we're no longer. We're now children of God, children of the light. We've, we've entered into the kingdom of his dear son. Nebuchadnezzar, could, could you step back from the precipice? Therefore, O king, my advice, let my advice be pleasing to you. Break away now. That's the word that means to tear off. Tear off from your sins by doing righteousness. And again, it's not the idea that uh, righteousness is uh, uh, atoning for your sins, but righteousness is a demonstration of repentance. Like, like truly repent, truly turn. Demonstration of his repentance. Abandon this pursuit of your own kingdom. Do justice, love mercy, walk humbly with your God. You need to turn from your sins and seek the mercy of the Almighty King. And who knows if the the Lord will keep back his judgment. And just as Daniel was silent when uh, he first understood the, the meaning of the, the vision, remember that? Daniel was appalled and he just kind of stood silent for a period of time. Now after uh, Daniel makes this plea, uh, what response does uh, Nebuchadnezzar have? Nothing. No response. After all this pleading... Nebuchadnezzar, the Lord may prolong your kingdom if, if you would only turn. And what response does Nebuchadnezzar have? Silence. Silence to the pleas of Daniel. The plea of the preacher answered by silence. And Nebuchadnezzar serves as a warning for, for all of us. For all of us. Heed the word of the Lord. Today is the day of salvation. Turn to Christ while there's time. It was only 12 short months later that we pick up with Nebuchadnezzar again. One year. Verse 28. All this happened to Nebuchadnezzar the king. 12 months later, he was talk, walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. The king reflected and said, Is this not Babylon the great, which I myself have built as a royal residence by the might of my power and for the glory of my Majesty, any, any pronouns show up more than once there? While the word was in the king's mouth, a voice came from heaven saying, King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is declared, sovereignty has been removed from you, and you will be driven away from mankind, and your dwelling place will be with the beasts of the field. You will be given grass to eat like cattle, and seven periods of time will pass over you until you recognize that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whomever he wishes." Immediately the word concerning Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. He was driven away from mankind and began eating grass like cattle, and his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair had grown like eagle's feathers and his nails like bird's claws. Why don't you pause for, with me for a minute for just a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we come before you once again as we enter this new section of Scripture. And uh, Father, we just pray that uh, you, Lord, would grant us your help, Lord, as we walk through this. Uh, Father, help us not just to, to see the words on the page, but uh, that they would be imprinted on our hearts. Help us to uh, live for you, Lord. Help us to repent, Lord, if there's any who are here who have not yet repented. Believers and unbelievers who haven't repented, Father, I pray that today would be the day and that you would use me as a weak instrument to be a blessing to your people, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. God does not tolerate pride. Doesn't tolerate it. 
Proverbs 8.13 says, Pride and arrogance and the evil way and the perverted mouth I hate. Like I said, 1 Peter 5 verse 5 says, God is opposed to the proud. Pride has no choice but to come down eventually. <laughs> eventually it's got to come down because God doesn't tolerate it. That's the way it works. When Satan's heart was lifted up in pride, he's cast down. When Adam and Eve ate the fruit, they were cast out. When mankind gathered together at Babel with the thought that they would reach the heavens, they were scattered. When the kings of the earth take their stand against the Lord and against his anointed, he shatters them like earthenware pottery. God will not tolerate pride. He has no competitors. Pride has to be beaten out of us if we're to come to God. If we're to come to repentance, I like what Calvin said. He says, when God therefore wishes to lead us to repentance... He is compelled to repeat the blows continually, either because we are not moved when he chastises us with his hand or we seem roused for a time and then we return again to our former lethargy. He is therefore compelled to redouble his blows. What what does that mean? God's not going to give up. The proud will be brought low. One way or the other, it's going to happen. There's no escape from this. And God redoubled his blows with Nebuchadnezzar. Redoubled his blows until his lips finally spoke the praise of God. God will bring us down. One author says all God has to do is touch one cell in your brain and you become a babbling idiot. <laughs> it doesn't take much. I mean, I mean, just honestly, I am terrified of God. I mean, I love God, right? I love God, but on the other side, there is a fear, <laughs> You know, uh, uh, Philippians speaks about serving the Lord with, with fear and trepidation, fear and trembling. Working out your salvation, not working for it, but working it out with fear and trembling. There is a trembling before God. I am terrified. God has no shortage of ways to get my attention if he desires to, right? Like, like why would I want to oppose this? We're such fragile creatures. And it all started out with the king's reflection back in chapter 4, verse 28. And all this happened to Nebuchadnezzar the king. Twelve months later, he's walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. The king reflected and said, Is this not Babylon the Great, which I myself have built as a royal residence by the might of my power, for the glory of my majesty, the unholy trinity, me, myself, and I? The Lord exercised patience for a full year after this prophecy was given. A full year! And sometimes when a judgment is delayed, we're, we're tempted to think that the Lord has forgotten when the judgment is delayed. Ecclesiastes chapter 8, verse 11 says, Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed quickly, therefore the hearts of the sons of men among them are given fully to do evil. You know, because I don't receive the penalty right up front, like I just think that I can continue to get away with it. And we can sometimes mistake the patience of God for weakness and apathy. The wicked, according to Psalm 94, verse 7, it says, The Lord does not see, nor does the God of Jacob pay heed. They weren't getting the punishment for their sins immediately. So it's like, hey, you know, maybe I'm getting away with this. God doesn't see. It's not paying attention. Emboldened by the delay of God's judgment. Rather than being overwhelmed at the mercy of God that he's, he's allowed me to last so long, you know, they're emboldened in their sin. Romans 2, 4, do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness? His tolerance, his patience, that word for, for patience, it's the Greek word uh, macrothumia. It's a, a word that means forbearance, a slowness in avenging wrongs. 
It's a word that literally means to be long-tempered. Long-tempered. Makros meaning long or far, and thumos meaning passion or rage, wrath. It's, it's have to have a long fuse. God, 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 God allows his patience to, to carry on before he finally meets out the judgment. And God will patiently wait for a long time. You know, in the days of, of Noah, God waited what? 120 years? The preaching of Noah, 120 years before the judgment finally fell? Exodus chapter 34 and verse 7 says that God is slow to anger. And the, the way that anger was uh, often portrayed in the Old Testament scriptures was uh, by the, the, the physical, you know, flaring of the nostrils, the physical expression of it. You know, and sometimes when you see people and they're angry, just like the nostrils start to flare out. That's what it means to have a short temper. Literally what it says in Exodus 34, 7, when it says God is slow to anger, it says that God has a long nose. <laughs> it, it, takes, it takes God a while before his nostrils start to flare. It's like he'll take a long breath before he finally lets it out. God, God is long-tempered, long-nosed. God will patiently wait while those continue to commit wrong. And Nebuchadnezzar did it for a full year in his presence. A full year. Twelve months later, walking on the top of the world. Top of the world. If you remember, the royal palace would have been uh, where the famous hanging gardens were. You know, one of Nebuchadnezzar's wives grew homesick for the mountains, so he built her some mountains on the top of his palace where he planted plants and trees just a reminder of her homeland. And while on this roof, as he's looking around, this is, again, one of the seven wonders of the world. He's just looking around. (laughs) Can you believe this? I mean, who else can build mountains? Forgetting somebody who established the mountains? Who can build mountains like this? Is this not Babylon the Great that I've built? And we don't even know if he was in front of anybody when he said this. I mean, apparently he's just kind of walking alone, just gloating to himself. This, can you believe this? This is, this is what I've built by my own hands, by my own might I've done this. Nebuchadnezzar's words are actually found in an ancient cylinder called the, the Grotefen Cylinder, describing the construction of Babylon. And listen to what he says. Then I built the palace, the seat of my royalty, the bond of the race of men, the dwelling of joy and rejoicing. I built it. Another inscription says this. In Babylon, my dear city, which I love, was the palace, the house of wonder of the people, the bond of the land, the brilliant place, the abode of majesty is in Babylon. And today we have to dig in the dirt to find it. (laughs) You know, this abode of majesty, this brilliance and splendor, now we have to excavate it to find it in the dirt somewhere. Shows you how long that lasted. But listen how he directs all the attention to himself. Is this not Babylon the Great, which I myself have built? So he gives him the credit for building it. I've built this. He claims all of Babylon is his residence. I've built it as a royal residence. All of it is mine. It's all for me. And the purpose of everything is for his honor, for the glory of my majesty. It's all for me. And it was through this that the king's heart was exposed. These are his reflections. This is what's going on in his head finally coming out. Like I said, we don't know if anybody else was there to hear him, but God knew his thoughts, right? Psalm 19, verse 14, Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. I actually uh, heard of a a story of a a pastor, true story. He was uh, looking in the mirror one day, and as he's looking at himself in the mirror, he says, man, you are one bad dude. 
by himself in a bathroom looking at the mirror. You are one bad dude. And immediately his face dropped. Bell's palsy happened immediately. As soon as like the words were out of his mouth, you are one bad dude. And then immediately. God, God has a way of getting our attention, even in the midst of saying it. <laughs> we move from the king's reflection to the Lord's revelation. Look at verse 31. It says, while the word was in the king's mouth, the voice came from heaven. You know, the king's not even able to finish his sentence before he hears, King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it's declared, sovereignty has been removed from you. You will be driven away from mankind. Your dwelling place will be with the beasts of the field. Be given grass to eat like cattle. Seven periods of time will pass over you until, the, until you recognize that the Most High is the ruler over the realm of mankind, bestows it on whomever he wishes. It's all repetition. There's nothing new here. Because <laughs> this is all that he's been warned about, Right? You've had the warning. I mean, this shouldn't have come to you as a surprise. It's been said that the mills of God grind slowly, but they grind exceedingly fine. Don't think that you're getting away. Don't be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, that shall he also reap. Proverbs 29, verse 1, a man who hardens his neck after much reproof will suddenly be broken and that beyond remedy. You know, how many times do you have to hear, don't do this, don't do this, warning, warning, before it's just like, okay, that's, it's, it's over. Just, you're going to be broken without remedy. Proverbs 6, verse 15, therefore shall this calamity come suddenly. Suddenly shall he be broken without remedy. The revelation of God was ignored until it was finally fulfilled. And would you notice that there is no plea to repent here? Before Daniel's pleading for him to repent. Here there is no pleading to repent. It's It's over. There, there's, there's, there's no more calls to, to repentance. He's left alone to deal with him with whom we have to do. This is terrifying. It's terrifying when the voice of preachers goes silent. You know, all, all the annoying preachers, you know, that you hear today, you know, one, one day you won't have to listen to them anymore. But that's going to be a bad day. That's going to be a bad day. There's going to come a day when you might wish there was a preacher, somebody that could explain the the way of, of hope to you. Because there's coming a time when it's too late. Revelation chapter 22 describes a time just before the Lord's return where Jesus says this through the Apostle John. Revelation 22, verse 11, it says, Let the one who does wrong still do wrong. And the one who is filthy still be filthy. Uh, excuse me? <laughs> what, what, what are you saying, Lord? I'm saying it's too late. That's, that's what I'm saying. I'm saying it's too late. If, if you're filthy, you're, you're just going to be filthy. There, there's, there's no time to turn around at this point. If, if, if you're wrong, you're still going to be wrong. There's no time to turn around. There's going to come a time for that. Here it's described as the coming of, of Christ, the return of the Lord. But who knows when that time might come for you? When, when you're unable to repent. Because you fall out and you're in a coma and there's, there's nothing else that you can do. Or your life is taken suddenly. You just drop dead. Like, who, who knows when that time could be where it's just like, oh, that's where you are. That's, that's where you're going to be. You, you have no idea. Why would you test the mercy of God? Testing the long suffering of, of God. Why would you do that? Or who knows where it might be for you, Christian? It's like, I'm a believer. I belong to Christ. Yes, that's true. But how do you know when that chastisement will come? You know, where the Lord's been, you know, constantly reminding you, turn away, turn away, turn away. And then finally, you know what? Okay, you're, you're, I mean, chastisement's here. And there's nothing you can do to reverse this. That time can come even for a believer, right? 
There'll be a time when there's no more pleading, no more calls to repentance, no more debates, no more of those Christians shoving their religion down my throat. There's a time when the preachers will cease from speaking, and then the Lord speaks for himself. Then the Lord speaks. Matthew 7, 23, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. You'd much rather have a preacher speak to you than the Lord to speak those words, right? And this is the day for Nebuchadnezzar. It's only a faint glimpse of that great day when it's all wrapped up and the preacher's job is done. But here for Nebuchadnezzar, the sentence was given. Sovereignty has been removed from you. He's demoted from his high position. You'll be driven away from mankind. He's going to be isolated from the city that he loves so much. Remember he talked about the city that I love so much? You're going to be isolated from that city, Nebuchadnezzar. Your dwelling place will be with the beast of the field. You're going to be humiliated in your dwelling place. You you think about this residence that you live in. It's so great, but now that's going to be removed from you. The palace that you gloated in won't be fit for a beast. You'll be given grass to eat like cattle. If you remember back in Daniel chapter 1, the king appointed the exiles a daily ration from the king's choice food. Remember that? No, No more choice food for you, Nebuchadnezzar. Now you're going to be given grass to eat. You know, the animals don't get a seat at the table. And seven periods of time are going to pass over you until you recognize that the Most High is the ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whomever he wishes. And that word for, for period is a, uh, the Greek translation of the Old Testament that uses the word years. And that's how Josephus understood the term. This, these are years. Seven years you're going to be like this. What we're talking about is a seven-year period of time where Nebuchadnezzar would be driven into the field like an unreasoning animal, terrifying judgment, completely lost, for seven years. And it happened just like the Lord said. Look at verse 33. Here we have the king's retribution. It says, immediately the word concerning Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled and he was driven away from mankind and began eating grass like cattle. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair had grown like eagle's feathers and his nails like bird's claws. We don't have uh, many sources outside of what we read here, but there was a Greek writer by the name of Megasthenes who lived from 312 to 280 BC and he recorded what he heard from the Chaldeans, from the Babylonians. According to their record, after Nebuchadnezzar completely uh, completed his military conquest, he was possessed by some god or other while on the roof of his palace. And the story goes on to speak about how this man was driven through the desert where wild beasts sought their food and he became a lonely wanderer among the rocks and the ravines. It's also interesting to note that for four years of Uh, the records of Nebuchadnezzar, his name completely disappears from the historical record. Completely disappears. And then he reappears again a short time before he dies. It's not a full explanation of what happened, but it demonstrates that the biblical record is accurate. This this is what happened. The curse that's fell upon Nebuchadnezzar here has been categorized as boanthropy. We already talked about that in 1946. A British mental institution documented this where a patient was hospitalized for about five years, and his custom was to pick up clumps of grass to eat, only drink water. Physical abnormalities consisted of a lengthening of his hair and, of course, thickening of the condition of his fingernails. And without institutional care, he would have manifested the same identical physical conditions as Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter 4. Can you see the scene? One, One writer says, we can almost... We can almost see him as he ran out of the palace, began to make sounds like a street animal. He tore the clothes off his body. We can see him rush deep into the thickets of Euphrates. 
In time, his hair grew long and his nails become hard and thick like bird's claws. He had become a madman. Evidently, his counselors took care of his kingdom during that time, which is another amazing fact to, to note that uh, during this time while he's you know, a raving lunatic that nobody came and just took his kingdom away from him. You know, that his kingdom was preserved just like God said. That's, that's miraculous considering all the, you know, the, uh, the, the fighting and clawing for the position of the top. Nebuchadnezzar's position was, was left for him. So evidently, his counselors took care of him. Perhaps even Daniel supervised the king's, as the king's custodian. Again, Daniel knows that it's only going to be seven years. You know, so Daniel being in the king's court might have actually held the position for the king. But imagine what people might have started to say. Is he, is he sick? He hasn't made a public appearance in months. Somebody says he's dead and they're just afraid to tell us. They're afraid there's going to be a rebellion. Then the rumors start to circulate. Somebody said he's been seen in the thickets of the Euphrates, going around on his hands and knees. His, his body is covered with hair. I've heard that the king's turned into an animal. I mean, seven years, that's like uh, two terms for our president. Can you imagine our president just being absent for two terms? Just completely gone, no public appearance. And then somebody says, I think I, I, think I saw him on the White House lawn, like, trying to mow it down with his teeth. Like, what's, you know, I don't know if you can imagine that or not, but maybe you can. (laughs) This is what we're seeing here. This is what we're seeing. That period of time finally came just as the Lord said it would. And, And here he is, a raving lunatic. Raving lunatic. But finally, we have the king's recognition. Look at verse 34. It says, at the end of that period, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes. That is so significant. Raised my eyes toward heaven and my reason returned to me. Let me ask you a question. What is it that causes us to turn our eyes towards heaven? Does that come from ourselves? Like, like this, is, this is the work of God here. Nebuchadnezzar wouldn't have been able to turn his eyes toward heaven unless it was God who drove his eyes there. You understand that? And we just spoke about before that you're going to recognize that it's what that rules? Heaven that rules. Where is he turning his eyes? Toward heaven. Turning his eyes towards heaven. It's the Lord who opens our hearts to respond to him. Acts chapter 16, verse 14, a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God was listening and the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. If the Lord did not change Nebuchadnezzar, he would still be with his face in the dirt. He would never have been able to respond to the Lord. This is, this is the Lord's doing. And you also have to remember, he's been shackled like an animal for seven years. He doesn't have the ability to raise his eyes to heaven. He's like this unreasoning animal, and it was the Lord who had to break his bondage, had to break his chain so that he could look up. As the hymn writer says, he breaks the power of canceled sin. He sets the prisoner free. Also consider where he turns. Like I said, he turns his eyes toward heaven. Rather than looking to the man-made mountains of his palace, he lifted his eyes to the mountains from where shall my help come from? As Psalm 121 says, my help comes from the Lord who made the heaven and the earth. I can't look to the, to the works of man. I can't look to my kingdom. And this is when his reason is returned to him. His first motion is towards heaven, and then his reason returns. He's like the prodigal son who was made into a beast because of his sin. Luke chapter 15, he's fighting with the 
the swine for a, just, a, just a, a, a corn cob. Like, give me something over here. He's like a beast wrestling with the, with the pigs. But then, it says in Luke 15, he came to his senses. He came to himself. I will get up and go to my father. The lifting of his eyes toward heaven is not merely describing the direction of his gaze, but the intention of it. The intention of his gaze. Psalm 123, verse 1. To you I lift up my eyes. O you who are enthroned in the heavens. That, that phrase, lifting up the eyes, was a biblical description of prayer. To lift up your eyes. I, to you I lift up my eyes. To you who are enthroned in the heavens. Jesus would often pray with his eyes lifted where? To heaven. John eleven forty one. After they removed the stone of Lazarus, Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you've heard me. John 17, verse 1, the high priestly prayer, Jesus spoke these things and lifting his eyes to heaven, he says, Father, the hour has come, glorify your son. The lifting of the eyes towards heaven in prayer. And I believe that that looking toward heaven is purposeful. And look at what he immediately does after he, his senses return to him. He, he recognizes who that God is. That's what repentance does, right? It, it recognizes who God is. Who is God? Verse 34. It says, And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored Him who lives forever. For His kingdom is an everlasting dominion and His kingdom endures from generation to generation. What does he first realize? The first thing, first thing that happens when he, 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 he comes to his senses, bless God. First thought, bless God. It's not to curse God. God, what have you been doing to me for these seven years? I can't believe you embarrassed me like this in front of my kingdom. How dare you? That's not the first thought on his mind. The first thought in his mind is bless the Lord. <laughs> bless the Lord. Bless the Lord, O oh my soul, right? I blessed the Most High and praised and honored Him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. He personally blessed and praised and honored him who lives forever. And remember, again, we're looking at an inspired text of Scripture according to Daniel. This was a genuine expression. Nebuchadnezzar truly blessed God and honored him. How do you do that if you're not a believer? Also, we're, we note that this biblical expression is a praise from Psalm 145. I mentioned that last time. That phrase... Or that, 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 that saying there, for his dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. Taken straight from Psalm 145. He's, he's speaking biblical praise back to God. And not only does he acknowledge the sovereignty of God, he acknowledges who God is. Now he acknowledges who I am. This, this is repentance, okay? Acknowledge who God is. Acknowledge who you are. Who are you? Look at verse 35 again. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as Nothing. All the inhabitants of the earth, which would have included Nebuchadnezzar. So now he comes before the Lord and he says, God, I'm nothing. I, I am nothing. All the inhabitants of the earth are nothing before you. God, you're, you're in control. Bless your name, God. You're in charge. I'm nothing. All the inhabitants of the earth are counted as nothing. Here we have another biblical expression. Isaiah 40, 23. He reduces rulers to nothing who makes the judges of the earth meaningless. Isaiah 40, verse 23. Psalm 33, verse 10. The Lord nullifies the counsel of the nations. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. I mean, somebody's been reading Scripture to this game. Uh, he's recalling back these biblical phrases and sentences and expressions to God. God, I am nothing. And he goes on to speak of the extent of how low we are. 
Verse 35 again, but he does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and no one can ward off his hand or say to him, what have you done? Uh, God, you're in charge, and I have no right to question you. I have no right to question you. The absolute sovereignty of God over his creation is one of the most difficult doctrines for people to accept. You know, when you start talking about God being sovereign and in control of absolutely everything that happens in life, people start to, oh, no, no, I mean, what about free will? <laughs> what, about my, what about my part in that? You know, I mean, God can't be in control of everything. You know, are you telling me that God was in control of that, you know, bad thing that happened to me last week, that God was somehow working in that? Like, yeah. Are you telling me that God is in control, like, you know, the salvation of men? I mean, come on. I mean, men have a free will. Uh, we're accounted as nothing. God does what he wants in the host of heaven. Nobody can ward off his hand or say to him, what have you done? He doesn't give an account to anybody. That, that's the God that we serve. One of the most difficult doctrines to accept, and Nebuchadnezzar would say, hey, that's, that's no problem for me. I mean, stick your nose in the grass for a couple years and then see what you think. Can God do what he wants to do, right? Like, no, I'm nothing. I mean, the only reason I'm speaking now is because God loosed my tongue to speak and lifted up my eyes to heaven so that I could see. I mean, it's, it's all of him. He's sovereign. He's in control of everything. I am nothing. And I deserve what happened to me. This is what he's acknowledging here. Nobody can ward off his hand or say to him, what have you done? Lord, I've been walking around as a beast for seven years, and I have no complaint. I have no complaint, God. Nobody can tell you what to do. It's, it's, it's totally in your sovereign will, and I accept it. I deserve it. I deserve it. The first sign that the thief on the cross had been converted is that he accepted his penalty. Luke chapter 23 and verse 40, the other answered and rebuking him said, do you not even fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? This is the first utterance that we have of the thief on the cross saying that something's changed about this guy. And we indeed are suffering justly. For we are receiving what we deserve for our deeds. This is what Nebuchadnezzar is saying. I'm like, what I've received, I've received it justly. Like, Lord, that's, it's right. What you do is right. And then finally, there's the king's restoration. Look at verse 36. It says, At that time my reason returned to me, and my majesty and the splendor were restored to me for the glory of my kingdom. My counselors and my nobles began seeking me out, so I was reestablished in my sovereignty, and surpassing greatness was added to me. You know, instead of his uh, counselors saying, like, hey, just by the way, let me tell you what happened in Nebuchadnezzar the last seven years. Like, you might not want to be in the same place with him. I don't know when he's going to turn again, you know. <laughs> you don't want to listen to that guy. <laughs> he's crazy. <laughs> no, all of his counselors came back. Just like the Lord said. Like, I'm, I'm going to leave the stump so that it can grow again. I'm going to return to you your, your kingdom and here the counselors came right back to Nebuchadnezzar to hear. Like, who would want to hear from the lunatic? Like, can you cut your nails before we talk? You know, just like, what's been going on here? A manicure, somebody. Right? But, but here he is. The, the lunatic is back. And now he's reestablished in his position. He's, he's been restored. My counselors, my nobles began seeking me out. I was reestablished in my sovereignty. Surpassing greatness was added to me. What What happened? What happened? 
Remember that verse we read earlier in 1 Peter 5? God is opposed to the proud, but does what? Gives grace to the humble. What Nebuchadnezzar experienced was the grace of God. Nebuchadnezzar, you don't deserve it. Nebuchadnezzar, you've opposed me for all of your life. Nebuchadnezzar, you even desire to have my throne. But you know what I'm going to give you? I'm going to give you grace. I'm going to give you grace. And what have we received from the Lord? We've received grace. Those who were rebels, those who desired their own kingdom, I will not have this man to rule over us. I don't want God in charge. I want to be in charge. What about my freedom, my free will? No, no, we, we, we're, we're those who've received grace. Lord, I, I was a glory thief. But, but now I've received your grace. I've received of your mercy. And then look at verse 37. This is so remarkable. Verse 37, it says, Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise, exalt, and honor the King of heaven. Those are, are participles that speak about an ongoing action. So it's not saying that I, I praised and exalted and honored you one time. It's saying that I continue to praise, I continue to exalt, I continue to honor. It's an ongoing practice of Nebuchadnezzar now. Something has changed in Neb's heart, okay? Neb, Neb is not the same Neb anymore. We, we got a different Nebby here. You know, Stump, Stumpy has turned a corner. He says, I, I, I praise, I exalt, I honor. Why? Because all of his works are true, all of his ways are just, and he is able to humble those who walk in pride. That's what God does. And, and this serves as a warning to all of us. Are, are you walking in pride? Could it be you? Now, have you been given warning that you're neglecting, you're not paying attention to? Is God rapping on the door of your heart saying, hey, you need to pay attention, you need to wake up? Are you hearing the preacher talk and it's just like, wah, 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 can you, can you get to the, the side, please? You know, the game is on, right? It's, there, there, there's a change here. Like, like, like no, Lord, I, now I exalt you. I'm a different person. And he continued to do this. Something, something different happened here. And I also want you to, to see this just really quickly. Daniel chapter 4, look back at verse 17. Look at verse 17. Remember this, this sentence by the, the angelic watchers? Because this is what Nebuchadnezzar had to learn. It says, this sentence is by the decree of the angelic watchers and the decision is a command of the holy ones in order that the living may know that the most high is ruler over the realm of mankind and he bestows it on whom he wishes and sets over it the lowliest of men. Before we, we leave this, this chapter, who is the lowliest of men? Flip over to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, starting at verse 5. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says. He says, Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who although He existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied Himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, He humbled Himself 
by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And it's for this reason, because Christ came so low, because he became the lowliest of men, because he humbled himself. For this reason also, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Who is it? Who is the lowliest of men that that God is pleased to set over the kingdom? It's Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the lowliest. Jesus Christ was the one who humbled himself. And based upon his humility, who do we think we are? Not to regard others as more important than ourselves. Not to look out for the needs of, of others. Nebuchadnezzar, one of the things that Daniel said is, hey, can you care about the people in your kingdom? You know, you say you're a king. Like, what about the people in your kingdom? Do you care about anybody else besides yourself? How, how, how about us? Do we do things from selfishness and empty conceit? When we make decisions, do we think about ourselves primarily? Do you regard others as more important than yourselves? Do you just look at your own interests, what's in it for me? Or do you look at what's in it for other people? Because this is the attitude of Christ who humbled himself and for this reason was highly exalted. And he is the one who will rule over all. Amen? Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you, God, so much for uh, this time that we've had together in your word. Uh, Father, I pray that you would fix these truths into our hearts. Lord, help us to, help us to, to guard ourselves against this, this enemy of pride. Every time it lifts up its ugly head, seeks to be glorified, wants the throne for itself. Help us, help us to see the, the warning of Nebuchadnezzar. Help us to see what, what happened to him when he, when he exalted himself, when he stood in the boxing ring with you and opposed you. Help us to remember what happened to him. Help us to, to heed the warnings of, of Scripture. But Father, I pray that we would also Look at the examples of Scripture. The one that we want to be like is the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, the one that we want to be closest to is the Lord. The one that we most want to be like is Him. And Father, the, uh, the, the way to be exalted is to come low. That's what Jesus showed us. That's what He demonstrated for us. That He was brought low. Brought lower than any man. From the greatest height to the lowest depths, Jesus Christ came. And He did that in order that we might be saved. Father, we thank You for Jesus Christ. We thank You for a sacrifice. Help us to follow His example. Help us to love You and help us to, to eliminate, to, to kill, put to death the pride that we find in our heart. In Jesus' name we praise You and give You thanks. Amen. You have been listening to George Lawson Jr. of Baltimore Bible Church. To hear other messages or to find out about upcoming events and where we meet for weekly church services, please visit us online at www.baltimorebiblechurch.org. Baltimore Bible Church reserves all copyright protection under applicable law. Our copyright policy is available on our website and includes instructions for and limitations on duplicating all printed media, CDs, and digital files.